You're listening to the Matthew Sermon Series at Sojourn Carlisle. In this series, we are following Jesus and learning what it means to take on His yoke. We are pressing into His promise of true life. Well, good morning, Sojourn Church Carlisle. So good to see you uh, this first week of May. Um, I'm, again, sorry that we have to meet in this way, but I'm excited to get into what God has for us this morning. This week, we'll be looking at Matthew chapter 17, verses 1 through 13. Would you read along with me? After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and his brother John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. He was transfigured in front of them, and his face shone like the sun. His clothes became as white as the light, and suddenly Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with them, with him, excuse me. Then Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it's good for us to be here. I will set up three shelters here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Verse 5. While he was still speaking, suddenly a bright cloud covered them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down and were terrified. Jesus came and touched them and said, Get up, don't be afraid. When they looked up and they saw no one except, uh, excuse me, went then, uh, when they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus alone. Verse nine, as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, don't tell anyone about the vision until the son of man is raised from the dead. So the disciples asked him, why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Elijah is coming and will restore everything, he replied. But I tell you, Elijah has already come. And they didn't recognize him. On the contrary, they did whatever they pleased to him. In the same way, the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood what he had spoken to them about John the Baptist. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So here's the question for the day that we'll be looking at is this. How can we know that Jesus can be trusted? How can we know that Jesus can be trusted? And in today's text, we'll witness the following. We'll see the determination of Jesus in verse one, the demonstration of Jesus in verses two and three, the declaration of God in verses four and five, the dominance of Jesus in verse six and eight, and then finally the discernment of Jesus in verses nine through 13. Will you pray with me? Father, we do thank you and praise you for this day you've given us. We thank you that this is a new day that our eyes have not seen, our ears have not heard, and we do delight in you for it. God, I pray that you would be with us as we study your word. I pray that you allow your word to go forth and not come back void. Let some mind be transformed. Let some soul be saved for the advancement of your kingdom. Father, I ask as always that you would just take my little, make much of it. Glorify yourself as only you can. In Jesus' name, amen. I love to drive. Actually, um, I love to take long road trips. And in the 14 years of marriage and 18 years of dating Katie, uh, and I have been known for taking our long and adventurous trips around the country. Actually, in the very first year of our marriage, we made a rule to settle all of our fights while in the car. And one time I remember us being in the car for so long that we were like halfway to St. Louis um, on uh, I-64 heading west, of course. Some of our best road trips were actually in college. And while in college, we didn't have iPhone technology that many people have today. So the most valuable resource that you could have was either a physical map 
or a, a printout from Google Maps that, you, that guided you along the way, that you actually took with you and just looked at it as you drove. Nowadays, uh, students now wouldn't understand that because everyone can navigate anywhere at any time with the technology of iPhones and et cetera. But imagine with me for a second. Let's say you were traveling to Atlanta, Georgia from Detroit, Michigan, my hometown. What would you bring along with you? What would you need to make this trip a success? Beyond a GPS device, one of the most valuable resources on a road trip is one of these. You notice what that was? Yeah, that was a highway marker. And it's actually one that was located just south of Toledo, Ohio, off of I-75. But what did you notice about that highway marker? You see, that marker was unique. It had three different destinations on one side. It had the closest destination, which is Bowling Green, about 12 miles away. It had an intermediate destination, Cincinnati, with about 193 miles away. But notice, 652 miles away from that very spot, they had the city of Atlanta. And from that one spot, they could see not just where they were headed, but they could see their actual destination. You see, highway mile markers are very useful. They do a a couple of different things. One is that they can help you determine your exact location. You can make sure to know where you are. They can also help you determine how far you are away from your destination. But most importantly, I would argue, highway mile markers help you to determine if you're headed in the right direction. Now, in the same way that a highway marker serves as a Uh, serves as a resource for highway drivers um, to make sure that they're headed in the right direction. Similarly, um, Jesus also provides a significant mile marker for his disciples in this text today. He provides this mile marker to ensure them that they are headed, that he is headed in the right direction and that Peter, James, and John are not following him in vain. Now, I remember up to this point what has been transpired Jesus has been teaching his disciples almost constantly that it would be necessary for him to go to Jerusalem and to suffer from the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes to be killed and to be raised on the third day. And remember the promise that we read from last week's text, Matthew chapter 16, verse 28. That's what Jesus promised his disciples with these words. Truly, I tell you, there are some standing here who won't taste death and so they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom, in other translations would say in his royal splendor. So in our text today, we'll witness this promise experienced by Jesus, that some will of his disciples will not experience death until they see him in his, until they see him in his coming kingdom or in his royal splendor. Look with me at verse 1 as we look at this promise fulfilled. Chapter 17, verse 1 says this, After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, his brother, and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. Remember what we said last week about Jesus and his determination that those who who know exactly where they're going make deliberate choices along the way. You see, Jesus has spent the last six days drilling his disciples with the fact of his coming death and his resurrection. And Jesus needed needed to take some time to get along with God. So he decides to take three of his closest disciples. He takes Peter, James, and John, and he leads them up a high mountain by themselves to an isolated place where they could not be interrupted. 
It's a good place to remember this aspect of Jesus, that Jesus is an introvert, (laughs) that he loves to get away to be refreshed in isolation with God. And notice four reasons why Jesus needs to get away. One is because of the pressure ahead. You see, Jesus would have to face the cross of Calvary alone because he alone could be our, our soul sacrifice. You see, the pressure within because only Jesus could bear the penalty for human sins. We think about his past days. Think about the last six days of him enduring intense training of his disciples. Six days of explaining the death that he would have to endure for human sin as an innocent man. And lastly, we see the peace within that he simply needed to be renewed by the very presence of God. This is a good reminder for us of a false teaching called um, Dalcetism that says simply this, that Jesus' body was an illusion, that Jesus really didn't have a physical body while on earth. But no, this shows us and it reminds us that Jesus truly was fully human. And like any other human being, he needed to take time away from his mission to be recharged and to be rejuvenated by the very presence of God himself. This is a point of grace for us uh, as, as we are in quarantine, even this week, that if Jesus needed to take rest, so should you. Yeah, I'm talking to you. I'm talking to our super moms and dads who are on 24-7. If anything that this quarantine has shown us is that, yeah, parenting just does not stop during the quarantine. You are not only a parent, you're a teacher, you are a, a referee in fighting, and you're the principal all in the, all in the same day. And much like God's establishment of the, of the Sabbath during creation, Jesus provides an example for us. He provides an example of us learning how to take time to rest. And he encourages and he invites us to do the same. Notice with me the demonstration of Jesus in verses two and three. It says this, he was transfigured in front of them and his face shone like the sun. His clothes became as white as the light. And suddenly Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with them. Notice with me that Jesus is not just a man, but Jesus is the glory of God. I love this word transfiguration here. Because the Greek, the Greek word for trans, being transformed or transfiguration simply means a, a change into another form. It, it comes from the root word where we get our English word metamorphosis, and it means a change of countenance. It is a complete change into something new. I have two images that I want to share with you. One is simply an image that you probably are very familiar with within this analogy of metamorphosis. It's simply uh, this image right here of a caterpillar turning into a butterfly. You can see how over time this uh, metamorphosis is actually happening in the life of this beautiful creature. But I have another illustration, analogy I want to use, and this is for my, uh, my young men and women who are in Soldier and Kids. Check out this image. Yeah, this is an image of the Mighty Morphin Power Rangers. It was one of my favorite shows growing up. Uh, maybe it's one of yours now too. I'm watching a lot of that during this quarantine, thanks to my youngest son, Luke. You see, but notice, unlike the caterpillar and the, and the Power Rangers, Jesus' glory was revealed not through a process, but through his body. In other, in other words, Jesus didn't have to change into glory. He only revealed his glory in a new way. 
This is a good reminder for us as a, as a church that we don't worship God to make him glorious. He is glorious, therefore we worship and we're reminded of his eternal glory while we worship. I love what one commentator says about this. He said, David Platt in his christ Center exposition of Jesus exalting, uh, Jesus exalting in Matthew, he says these words. He says, Jesus was not merely reflecting or proclaiming divine glory. Jesus was the revelation of divine glory. To put it another way, Jesus just doesn't mirror or imitate the glory of God. Jesus is the glory of God. It's a good reminder for us that this event, that this transfiguration was given as a gift to Peter, James, and John to know that Jesus was indeed headed in the right direction. And although he would suffer shame and he would suffer uh, the death, even at the death of a cross, they weren't following him in vain because Jesus was who he claimed he was. Or he, well, he, Jesus was who he claimed himself to be. And like any good trial, we have two primary witnesses that speak to this identity of Jesus being God's glory. Listen to what John says in John 1.14 about Jesus. He says, the word became flesh and took up residence among us and we observed his glory. First John 1 and 5 says it this way, God is light and there's absolutely no darkness in him at all. I love how Peter talks about this moment um, when he rewrites it in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 17 to 18. He says these words, he says, for we received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory saying, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice when it came from heaven while we were with him on the holy mountain. This is a good reminder for us that yes, this indeed happened on a mountain and it's very important for us to recognize that this didn't just happen anywhere. It happened on a mountain. And not only did it happen on a mountain, But while he was on the mountain, two figures, historical figures, showed up. You see, God had also taken two men to the mountain before. Moses, who represented the law of God, and Elijah, representing the prophets of God, at strategic points, took them to a mountain where he himself, God himself, showed them his own glory. Moses reflected divine glory by representing the law of God. Remember Moses? how God met with Moses and his people on a mountain to give them the law. Elijah, in a similar similar way, if Moses was the one who reflected divine glory, Elijah was the one who proclaimed divine glory. And he represents the prophet of God, the prophets of God, excuse me. In in 1 Kings chapter 18, Elijah challenged the prophets of of Baal on another mountain, Mount Carmel. And God showed up and showed out by sending fire down on the, on the sacrifice when the false gods and false prophets of Baal cried out and could not do the same. You see, Moses and Elijah were the two greatest prophets in the Old Testament. And while Moses represents the law or the old covenant, Elijah represents the prophet who foretold the coming of the Messiah. So here's the obvious question. This is the elephant in the room that we have to, have to ask ourselves. Two men show up on the mountain. So what? What are they doing? They're talking. Well, what are they talking about? Luke 9, talk, Luke 9 gives us a greater 
uh, understanding of what they were talking about. Apparently, these men were honoring and ministering to Jesus as he prepared himself to head towards Jerusalem. They were speaking to him about his impending death, according to Luke chapter 9, verses 30 and 31. I love what one commentator says about this. He says, the conversation was about Jesus' departure and death. The word translated death is a Greek word from which we get the word exodus. In the great exodus of the Old Testament, the father used Moses to deliver his people from slavery. And now as the culmination of his saving actions, the father sent Jesus to deliver his people from sin. But not only were they meeting to talk about the impending death of Jesus, Their meeting also symbolized something. It symbolized that the law and the prophets found their fulfillment in Christ, that Jesus was the true Messiah, the Son of God, the one who was superior to the law as well as the one who was superior to the prophets. Christ was the one whom the law and the prophets spoke about. Christ was the one whom the law and the prophets pointed to. Christ was the one who fulfilled the old covenant and ushered in the new. I love what a commentator says in the glory of God and the transfiguration of Christ. He says these words, here we perceive that the living and the dead are one in Christ, that the old covenant and the new are inseparable, that the cross and the glory are as of one, and that the age to come is already here, that our human nature has a destiny of glory. And then in Christ, the final word is uttered and in him alone, the father is well pleased. This is a good reminder for us again that Jesus is not just a man. He is the glory of God. I love how Hebrews 1, 3 says it. It says, he being, he being Jesus, Jesus is the radiance of God's glory and the exact expression of his divine nature. Colossians 1, 15 and 19 puts it this way. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in him. Notice with me the, three, the, the threefold office that's represented here. You know, Jesus has always held the threefold office of prophet, priest, and king. But notice that these three uh, these two visitors with Jesus also make a threefold office. You have the greatest prophet of the Old Testament, Elijah. You have the greatest pre- priest of the Old Testament, that is Moses. And now you have the greatest king surrounded one on one another and talking about how, the, talking about and encouraging Jesus as he continues to head towards Jerusalem for the redemption of humanity. In verses four and five, we see the declaration of God. Notice here, verse four, it says this, then Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you want, I will set up three shelters here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And while he was still speaking, suddenly a bright cloud covered them and a voice from the cloud said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. This is a good reminder for us that when we have a correct understanding who Jesus is, we will naturally obey him. We will naturally and also delightfully obey him. Notice Peter's mistake in verse four. It seems like Peter has learned from his previous mistake because he doesn't take Jesus aside and rebukes him, this time at least. Instead, he makes a suggestion by giving preferential treatment to Jesus by saying, 
if you want Jesus, I will set up three shelters here. Well and good, Peter. I think he's learned his lesson. But notice here, Peter is making a reference to building three shelters to celebrate the festival of tabernacles. It was when the, fe- the Israelites dwelt in booths for seven days, according to Leviticus chapter 23. You see, while Peter was expressing a desire to stay in that place for a long time, Peter was also expressing a commonality against Jesus and also Moses and Elijah because he believed that Jesus was just a great, great teacher, not just God incarnate. But here's the point in verse five. God immediately, immediately interrupts Peter's feeble words and put their focus on his son. And while Peter was speaking, God interrupted him. I love how verse five says, it says, while he was speaking, God spoke. And this is a point of grace for us because it reminds us that Peter erred, where when Peter erred in placing Moses and Elijah on the same level as Christ, it's a good reminder and encouragement for us that even when we get it wrong, God can make it right. You see, Christ was the one to whom Elijah and Moses had pointed. In other words, Moses and Elijah's presence didn't validate Jesus. But Jesus' presence validated Moses and Elijah. Notice with me that just as God's voice in the cloud over Mount Sinai in Exodus 19 gave authority to his law, here God's voice at the transfiguration of Jesus gave authority to Jesus' words. You see from the very clear, the triune presence of God. You see the physical appearance of a cloud that is represented by the very presence of God, the spirit of God or the Holy Spirit. You see the voice speaking from the cloud, the voice from God, uh, from God of the God of creation, from the God of, from the very beginning in Genesis. And then you see the only one who's able to stand within that very presence of God, Jesus himself. You see the spirit, you see God, the, God, the father, God, the spirit, God, the son and God, the spirit all in one at this one place. And notice what his message is. His message is simply the eternal message that we'll hear from now until the very end of time. The eternal message of God was, is, and will forever be. This is my beloved son, whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. This is the point of grace that God wants us to get today as a church. That even for Jesus, his identity precedes his function. You see, Jesus had not died yet. He had not been buried yet, and he had, not been yet, he had not been raised yet. Yet and still, notice God's reaction. He first calls him as his own. He says, this is my beloved son. He declares his satisfaction over him by saying, in whom I am well pleased. And finally, he says, listen to him. God himself exclusively gives Jesus preeminence over anyone who came before him. I love this because it's a good reminder for us that as we are found in Christ, these same truths are true for us. I love how Colossians 3.12 puts it. Therefore, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, put on compassion and hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Did you get that? Our function comes after our identity. Paul, in that great book, Make sure to let us know that our identity is chosen ones, holy and beloved by God. And because of that, we can walk in the function that he puts before us. Notice with me in verses six through eight, the dominance of Jesus. 
It says, when the disciples heard this, they fell face down and were terrified. Jesus came up and touched them and said, don't be afraid, get up. And when they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus alone. It's a good reminder for us that when we have a correct understanding who Jesus is, we will worship him. You see, worship is the only proper response to the realization that God is present with us. You see, the disciples were not mistaken of their experience. They experienced a clear, infinite, and a clear sense of God's presence. And consequently, they fell prostrate on their faces before the Lord Almighty. It's a good reminder for us that God's goodness, his presence, and his glory demands a response from us. Love how Psalm 102, uh, 107.2 says, it says, let the redeemed of the Lord say so. Before the presence of God, Isaiah fell bare in, uh, before God in Isaiah 6 verse 5. Ezekiel in verse chapter 1, uh, 28 of, his, of the great book of Ezekiel, he collapsed in God's presence. And John, even John, whom we're talking about now, from Revelations 1, 17, he fell dead like a dead man before Jesus prior to him getting the vision from God on that Isle of Patmos. You see, in fear, they soon realized that he alone was there and no one else. That is, the disciples soon realized that only Jesus could stand before God's presence. And this is a good reminder for us to be reminded that Jesus stood because he stands alone. No one else but him could have been in that, and could have transfigured, and no one else but him could stand before the presence of God on our behalf. This is a point of grace for you as a church. In your time of anxiousness, remember that Jesus stands alone. During your time of fighting and quarreling with your spouse and even with your children, remember that Jesus stands alone. During your confusion and insecurities, remember that Jesus stands alone. When plans fail and people are not dependable, remember that Jesus stands alone. When your money is running low and your finances are uncertain, remember that Jesus stands alone. And even as we enter week seven of quarantine, remember that Jesus stands alone. Notice with me the discernment from Jesus in verses nine, verses nine through 13. Verse nine begins this way. It says, as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, don't tell anyone about the vision until the son of man is raised from the dead. So the disciples asked him, why didn't the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Elijah is coming and will restore all things, he replied. But I tell you, Elijah has already come and they didn't recognize him. On the contrary, they did whatever they pleased to him. In the same way, the son of man is going to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he spoke to them about John the Baptist. Notice here that Jesus, to know Jesus as, as a Messiah means to know the significance of his life and his mission. To know the significance of his life, his death, his burial, and his resurrection. Notice here that Jesus demands that they remain quiet until after the resurrection. And Jesus' command points, to, points them to his resurrection for vindication. Verse 9. You see, the resurrection pr proves the humanity of Jesus, that Jesus really became human because only a human can die. Not only that, the resurrection of Jesus proves that Jesus Christ is the sinless son of God. Because as Romans tells us, 
3.23, that the way, excuse me, 6.23, that the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God through Christ is found in Jesus. And finally, that the resurrection proves that the transfiguration really happened. You see, Jesus is more than just a great teacher, a great leader, or a great prophet. Jesus is God in flesh. Notice with me the disciples' confusion. They were confused and rightfully so. They had learned from childhood that, uh, that, that Elijah must come first before the Messiah. And they just saw Elijah on the mountain with Jesus. So in their mind, this is what they're thinking. We just saw Elijah. Why didn't he come before you? And they're confused about the identity and the function of Elijah. But notice how Jesus answers them in verses 11 through 12. He helps them to see that John the Baptist fulfilled the following prophecies of Malachi. That in Malachi 3.1, when he says, see, I'm going to send my messenger, he will clear the way before me. He's not talking about um, Elijah. He's talking about John the Baptist. And in Malachi 4, 4 through 6, when he says, look, I'm going to send you the prophet Elijah before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. Otherwise, I will come and strike the land with the curse. It's not talking about a physical Elijah, but he's making reference to John the Baptist. And he answers the question in Matthew 7, 17, by pointing out that John the Baptist is Elijah to come, who had already come, and yet they didn't recognize him. This is a reminder for us to understand that Jesus gives knowledge where there is confusion. And he is a gracious God who loves to come beside us in our weakness, in our frailty, and even in our uncertainty and provide divine revelation where there may be fear or even apprehension or a lack of an, lack of an opportunity to truly understand. And notice this point of grace as we close. As much as Jesus has asked a commitment from his disciples, notice that Jesus also had made a commitment to his disciples. And despite their confusion, despite their fear, despite them not knowing and rightly understanding Jesus' life and mission, he took the time to help the disciples understand that the kingdom of God was not going to be ushered in in the way that he thought it would be, but it would be ushered in through a bloody cross, an empty tomb, and a resurrected Savior who will one day come again to judge the living and the dead. If you are in a state of confusion, if you are skeptical of Jesus really was human, if you are uncertain and even doubt Jesus as being God's son, we can firmly believe that Jesus is God's son, our Messiah, because of the determination of Jesus in verse one, the demonstration of his power in verses two and three, the declaration from God himself from the cloud in verses four and five, the dominance of Jesus that only he can stand in the presence of God, verses six and eight, and the wise discernment of Jesus that we see in verses nine through 13. Will you pray with me? Father, we do thank you and love you. We ask that you, God, would grow us in our affections towards Jesus during this time of quarantine. Thank you, God, that you are committed to us, that you pursue us even in our confusion. You, confuse, you, you pursue us, Lord, even when we don't understand or comprehend. I pray, Lord, that you will grow us in a greater love for you, even today. As always, take my little, make much of it, glorify yourself. In Jesus' name, amen. 
I'm James A.P. Fields, Jr., lead pastor at Sojourn Church Carlisle. Thanks for listening. We're a church that is rooted in the community of South Louisville, and we are seeking to advance the gospel of Christ in South Louisville and beyond. For more sermons, info about our church, and ways you can support our ministry, visit SojournChurch.com backslash Carlisle, C-A-R-L-I-S-L-E. God bless.